Welcome, welcome to Regeneration. My name is John Elmore. I have a new life in Christ. I'm recovering from alcoholism, pride, and this past week being way too short and sharp with my kids. Everyone, welcome. Uh, as that song said, we're gonna be talking about revolution and resolution and the difference. Because right here in New Year's, you cross over into the New Year's and everybody's making resolutions, right? It's the thing to do. You sit down at the table, you got your coffee, you're thinking, you're looking back, you're looking ahead, and you make the resolution. Anybody here make resolutions? Show of hands. Okay, you do not represent the American populace. So 80% of Americans make resolutions, 80% make resolutions. And here's the ironic thing, is that one month later, 80% of those resolutions have already failed within one month, which makes the 20% kind of smart that were like, not gonna waste my time, although they didn't experience any change. Maybe the 80% got one month of change at least. It's why gym memberships spike. It's why dieting spikes. It's why Weight Watchers spikes. It's why everything spikes. It's why regen spikes, because everyone's like, this is the year. That was rough. It's a new start, new me, new beginning. I'm making some resolutions, and 30 days in or less, they're toast. So on January 19th, having surveyed eight 100 million activities. We're talking gym memberships, dieting, all this. Strava, according to Inc. Magazine, January 19th is officially called Quitter's Day. Because that's, that, dude, that's two and a half weeks. Two and a half weeks. That's 80%. And then Forbes records that the remaining percentage that's kind of eking by on the resolutions, by the end of the year, only 8% actually carry through with the resolutions. To which I would say, those people probably have a lying problem. And they need to resolve to tell the truth the next year because it's just like, it's, it's this impossibility to just change. You muster up the strength because you wrote it on a piece of paper, stuck a post-it note in your car. It's going to change you somehow. It's not the case. And then further, they surveyed this, this organization who surveyed like National Quitting Day on January 19th. Sorry for the spoiler alert there if you made resolutions. Maybe you're in that 8% that's going to make it to next year. Congrats. They surveyed them and they're like, hey, why? Why does your resolution fail? Why would you guess? What's the number one reason? It, it's, it's not lack of desire. It's not lack of concern. Like, man, I got this health issue. I got to lower my blood pressure. I got, I got to get my diabetes in check because of my blood sugar. I got to, this year, I've, I've got to find a spouse, man. I got to date and get outside and put down the video. Whatever it is, it's not because of desire. It's not because of concern. It's not because family kind of rallied around. It's like, hey, man, we think you actually have a problem. It's because of a lack of willpower. That's what the world says. It's like, hey, I, I want to. But I didn't even make it to the 20th of January because I don't have the willpower. And for all of us sitting here, and even the reason why we're in these doors tonight, why we're sitting in this auditorium, is because we know, we have come to realize that, hey, willpower doesn't, isn't enough for sin's power. My willpower does not have enough to conquer sin's power. And so instead of talking about resolutions, we're gonna talk about why resolutions fail and why in 2021, what you need is a revolution, not a resolution. 
and that will be enough. So tonight we're talking about the difference between resolution and revolution, why it matters, and how you can have a revolution. So first point, resolutions and why they fail. A resolution is defined as a firm decision to do or not do something. It is a firm decision. It's just volitional in your mind. It's, it's this resoluteness of I will or won't do this thing. It is based on willpower. Now, here's the thing. I had three doctors tell me when I was steeped in my alcoholism back in 2004, 2005, when I was like, you know, downward trajectory in everything, but especially in my health, I had three doctors tell me, if you keep drinking like this, you're going to die. And that wasn't enough. There wasn't enough there to be like, this will be the end of all things. There wasn't enough there because willpower doesn't conquer sin's power. There had to be more. And I remember thinking, like, these doctors would tell me this. They'd be like, hey, if you don't stop drinking, you're going to die. And then they would literally send me out of their office. I'm like, are you serious? That's like malpractice. You can't just tell someone they're going to die if they don't stop doing something and have them give them no instruction on how to stop doing that thing that I'm addicted to. Like, oh, hey, doc, that's brilliant. You mean I need to stop drinking? How much do I owe you? That's, that's like mind-blowing advice. Dude, I knew that. I knew I was an alcoholic. My drinking friends told me I was an alcoholic. My family and my doctors, I, that wasn't the problem. It wasn't like I just needed to make a decision, have some light bulb moment. That wouldn't have done it. You guys know that. Like, oh, you mean I just need to stop porn? Oh, man, I, why didn't I think of that? That's so smart. Do you have a PhD? Because we know it's more than just the simplicity of a decision, but that's what a resolution is. The other thing is that resolutions are stated this way. We say like, hey, I wanna lose weight. Or uh, I, I wanna be a better um, steward of my money. Or I wanna, I wanna spend more time with others. But those are just like, those are euphemistic symptoms. And what's below that is actually sin. So I want to lose weight is code for I need to quit gluttony. Like I've got an eating problem, which I do, by the way. Uh, I want to do better with my money. I want to save more, spend better, you know, get under control, my debt, my credit cards, my gambling addiction, whatever it may be. Like, like that's code for greed and materialism and carelessness with what God has entrusted to you, stewardship. I'm gonna spend more time with others is code for selfishness. And I don't love others as God instructs me to. There's a sin beneath the symptom. And so if you think you can like make a resolution and decide yourself out of sin, dude, you're crazy. And welcome to regeneration. That's why we're all here is because we know that doesn't work. And so you gotta look at the sin beneath the symptom. That's why resolutions don't work. As the old hymn, Rock of Ages says, he says, um, the writer says, not the labor of my hands can fulfill thy law's demands. I can't work my way out of this problem. It goes on to say, uh, could my zeal no respite know? My, my zeal, my fervor, my desire, if it had no rest, no respite, no. And if my tears would forever flow, these for sin could not atone. Thou must save and thou alone. 
And so if your problem is related to sin, maybe it's sleeping in and hitting snooze. Well, the sin beneath that is sloth. There's no resolution that can cure that. Just like the hymn said, thou must save and thou alone, not the labor of my hands. Could my zeal no respite know? Could my tears forever flow? It is all you, God, you have to do this Why resolutions don't work. When David goes up against Goliath the giant, the spirit inspires the writer of the scriptures to say he picked up five smooth stones. That's human thinking. And with one stone, there is a giant sinking. Because with God's help, he's like, no, you need, you need one. Drop the other four. I got this. You bring me into the fight. It's done. The giant dies. And so we have to do with our sin, not a resolution, but bringing God into it. The other reason why resolutions fail is rules don't make resolutions work. If you put these like boundaries around yourself, hey, I'm going to I'm gonna set an alarm on my phone. I'm gonna, I'm gonna put my credit cards there and only use my debit card. Me and my girlfriend aren't ever gonna be home alone and there's wisdom in that. Uh, I'm, gonna, I'm gonna do X, Y, or Z and put these rules around you. Rules don't make resolutions work because it's a relationship that will change your reality. Only a relationship will change your reality, not rules. This is not my idea. Scripture says it. Colossians 2, 21 through 23. The Bible says this. Do not handle, do not taste, do not touch. Which, when we're not biblically informed, like, oh yeah, that's what the Bible is. It's just a bunch of rules, right? Do not handle, do not taste, do not touch, do not get drunk, do not mess around with your girlfriend. That's just the, that's what the Bible says, right? Referring to things that all perish as they are used according to human precepts and teachings. These indeed have an appearance of wisdom, and promoting self-made religion and asceticism, which means uh, just trying to keep yourself from the pleasures that you're pulled towards, and severity of the body, but they are of no value in stopping the indulgence of the flesh. Like all the rules, all the resolutions, they are not going to help you restrain the flesh, that inward daily pull that makes you want to do that which you don't want to do. The Bible, not me, the Bible says those rules are of no value. They have an appearance in their self-made religion, but they have no value in restraining the flesh. Only a relationship will change a reality. The other reason why resolutions don't work is we're more concerned about our situation than our sin against God. I said this a little bit before, like we, we say euphemistically, lose weight rather than gluttony. We're more concerned about our situation rather than our sin against God. And here's what I would say. You can't repent from what you're not grieved by. Colby and I are reading Thomas Watson, The Doctrine of Repentance, 400-year-old Puritan dude. And he says one of the essential ingredients of repentance, like meaning you cannot turn or change or stop doing what you don't want to do unless there's six ingredients, one of which is sorrow for your sin. And you can't be sorrowful for a sin that you won't acknowledge or that you won't see. You've got to see it and acknowledge it and state it in order to have sorrow over it. And you see it as sin, not just a situation, because we, we care more about our weight for vanity's sake, not because our body is a temple of God, that we were bought at a price and therefore honor our bodies with God. The other night, I was sitting in bed, and I'm like, 
man, kind of had a light dinner. I told Laura, I'm gonna, I'm gonna go downstairs and have a bowl of cereal. Dude, I had a box of cereal, Trader Joe's Corn Flakes. Not Corn Flakes, like Frosted Flakes, the sweet ones with whole milk. That's messed up. I left like a little bit, enough for my son Hill because he likes them. Literally almost ate the whole box. And you know what I'm more concerned about? Man, I bet I'm gonna go up and wait. I bet I'm probably gonna gain a couple pounds over break. No joke, that's what I'm concerned about. Not, I just sinned against God. And I knew it going into it. And in case you're like, really, cereal? Dude, you know why I'm in here? I'm in here because I'm a sex addict. You're talking about cereal? Give me a break. My cereal gluttony will lead to a sexual gluttony. It's the same thing. If I feed my flesh here, it will take me there. And so it is very serious. And no matter where you are on that spectrum, we are more concerned about our situation than our sin against God, and it's why resolutions don't work. We care more about money and status for comfort's sake rather than we do about furthering the kingdom. This is Judas and Peter. So Judas denies Christ. He, he betrays him, sells him for 30 pieces of silver. And by the way, there's this incredible quote that says, uh, men as the men of old still have a price by which they are sold. And for 30 pieces of silver, Judas sold himself and not Christ. That was his price, to sell himself out. And so it is with us. Like we've got this, we've got this amount where we're like, yeah, I'll walk away from Jesus for that. If you'll give me the girl, you'll give me the job, you'll give me the pleasure, you'll give me the treasure, You'll give me the measure that I'll be better than somebody else? Yeah, I'll, I'll compromise for that. And so you've got Judas who is more concerned about a situation because he sold out Christ. And we see him, rather than running to the cross of Jesus and being like, throw himself at the feet with the rest of the apostles who were there. Well, some had, some had fled actually, the women are there. Rather than Judas going to the cross and being like, Lord, I betrayed you. You know where he is? Where is he? He's in the temple. He's in the temple with his 30 pieces of silver, throws them back in and he says, this is blood money, I can't take it. And they're like, that's your problem. He doesn't go to the one that he betrayed. Who can forgive him? He's just trying to like make it right. And it's exactly what we do. Oh shoot, man, I screwed up in 2020. I gotta make this right by my effort. I gotta make a resolution to make this right, because dude, I've, I've screwed up. I gotta, I gotta get this in gear, professionally, relationally, financially, mentally, emotionally, whatever it is, I gotta, I gotta take my money to the temple and get it right by my own effort. And guess where that led him? Despair, isolation, and suicide. Hung himself in the potter's field, burst open his bowels, died there, apart from God apart from the people of God. Woe to the one who betrays the Son of God. And then you've got Peter, who really did the same thing. There's a little girl standing around the fire warming himself at Caiaphas' house. High priest, Ananias. Servant girl. Hey, you were, you're one of him. You followed him. You were with him. No, it's not me. Third time. You're with him. No, it's not me. And he begins to call down curses upon himself, really similar to what Judas did. But the difference is, whereas Judas isolates, try to fix it on his own behavior, here you got Peter, 
And he's with the apostles. He's not isolated. He's not trying to go make it better on his own. He is with his brothers in Christ. He's with the people of God. And as soon as he sees Jesus, he's in the boat. It's like one of my favorite stories in scripture. Dude, he bombs out of that boat and starts Galilean freestyling to Jesus through all that water, beats the boat there as Jesus is there on the shore. And there's that incredible dialogue, Peter, do you love me? Feed my sheep. Peter, do you love me? Feed my sheep. Peter, do you love me? Feed my sheep. Three times, saying like, I know, I know. I know what you did three times betraying me, and I know you love me. Feed my sheep, Peter. And so he's running to Jesus. A relationship will change your reality, not trying to do good on your own with these resolutions. 2 Corinthians 7.10 says this, for godly grief produces a repentance which means turning from sin by turning towards Christ. It doesn't mean stop. That leads to salvation without regret, whereas worldly sorrow or grief produces death. This is the dichotomy between Judas and Peter. Judas had worldly sorrow. It led to death, isolation, suicide, condemnation. Peter had godly sorrow, which moved him to salvation, sanctification, ultimate glorification. So we've got to have sorrow, not about our situation, but against our sin, against God. So hopefully now I've convinced you that resolutions fail. And if not, you'll find out on January 19th. God doesn't want you to have resolutions. He wants you to have a revolution. He wants you to have a revolution. That's why I started with that song. Everybody yearns for it. I don't even like the Beatles. But is this cry within us, like, I just want change. And they didn't get it. They searched for it. They were the ones of yogis in India, hopped up on drugs, worshiping false gods. They were looking for it. They didn't find it. I mean, you even see it in the devolution of their music. It just, like, gets dark and weird and stupid. I was thinking about pigs and raccoons and, I mean, weirdness. They just like came undone as they sought after something else other than the one true God. So God has a revolution for you, and here's why they last. A revolution is defined as this, a forcible overthrow of a government or social order in favor of a new, not better, new system. It's from the Latin revolutio, which means to turn around, which here sounds a lot like repentance. Revolutio, not improvement of revolution, resolution, but like altogether new, revolution. The the word regeneration means born again. It doesn't mean better. It means born again, made new, altogether new, old dead, new gone, new come, That's a revolution, and it's what we need, not a resolution. I want to tell you about a land. So there's an island called Hispaniola. Everybody, anybody ever heard of Hispaniola? Four people. It was also called Saint Domingue. So we're talking like 1700s and prior. And in this land, it was called the Jewel of the Caribbean. 80% of the world's sugar came out of Saint Domingue or, or Hispaniola. That meant that it was a wealthy, wealthy place, 
when it's putting out 80% of the world's sugar, which was one of the most highest commodity goods traded in that day. It was called the jewel of the Caribbean. Now, St. Domingue or Hispaniola was run wrongly and sinfully by slaves. Two-thirds African slaves, one-third slaves from the Americas, overruled and oppressed by the French. Not just any French. We've had to bail the French out of a couple of world wars. Back then, the French actually were a world power. This is Napoleon Bonaparte. So Napoleon, conqueror, kind of, you know, attributed himself, he's like Alexander the Great. He was like a pretty good dude militarily. He ruled over the jewel of the Caribbean, Hispaniola, and was getting all of the proceeds from it, all that 80% from the sugar plantations, the sugar cane plantations. So on August 22nd, 1791, to Saint L'Ouverture, there is a revolution. And not just any revolution, a revolution by the slaves. The slaves revolted and the slaves overthrew Napoleon Bonaparte. That's insane and unheard of in the history of the world. It is the singular only time that slaves have ever had a successful revolution against an oppressing nation and then become an independent nation state. It is what you now know as Haiti in the Dominican Republic. But specifically, Haiti is where the revolution began, freed the country, fought back for 13 years, fought back the French. I spent a summer there. I was in the Citadel where they like shot cannons into the French Navy as they would approach to try to fight them back. For 13 years, they fought for their freedom and they got it. Now, if you know, Haiti is the poor, now the poorest. They were the wealthiest, the jewel of the Western Hemisphere. They are now the poorest nation in the Western Hemisphere because they were still oppressed. For 100 years, they still had to pay reparations to the French, which is crazy, and like gold francs. I mean, it's, it's insane. But though they struggle, they are free, and they are a beautiful people. And frankly, in a lot of cases, they have more joy than we do, though they live on $3 or less a day. I'll do the math for you. That's 1000 a year but they're free, but they're free because they had a revolution. Revolutions typically involve three essential ingredients, an intolerance and hatred for the oppressor, an unquenchable desire for freedom, and thirdly, death. We need a revolution because we have an oppressor. From one garden to another, we have an oppressor. You see the serpent with Adam and Eve there in the garden. Did God say that you would surely die? You will not surely die. And immediately he's planting the seed of doubt with Adam and Eve, not just trying to get them to sin, he's trying to get there to be a coup, that they would come out from under God's good rule and fall prey. And so there is this attempted coup, they fall in sin, and that's one garden. Then you fast forward, you have another garden, and you've got Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane where he is sweating blood because he's being tempted. And the words that come out of the Son of God who was born to die, he came to earth, God in flesh, to die for our sins. And there he is wrestling with temptation from Satan. And he said, Lord, Father, if there's any way that this cup will pass, let it be. And he's sweating blood. 
He's tempted. He has no sin. He is tempted by Satan. Hey, take a way out. Don't go to the cross. You're God. The son of God. You're God in flesh. You're going to let your own creation nail you to a tree? You're God. Smite them. There's got to be another way. And so he prays, Father, if there's any other way, let it be. If not, not my will, but your will be done. And the reason why I believe that was Satan tempting him in the garden, because it's not there in the scriptures, is because if you go back to when Jesus is tempted in the wilderness, it says that Satan comes at him with three different temptations, and Jesus refutes him and rebukes him with scriptures all three times, and it says he leaves him until a more opportune time. And the greatest agony that we see from Christ, apart from the cross, is when he is there in the Garden of Gethsemane, which is the olive press, where olives were just crushed by this stone wheel and poured out. And there he is in the, the crushing garden, sweating blood, saying, if there's any way, let it pass. I think Satan, it was his last ditch effort before he went to the cross. But God prevails. The Son of God prevails and says, but not my will, your will be done. A revolution. We need a revolution because we have that same oppressor. It says in Revelation 12, 17, then the dragon, Satan, became furious with the woman. For our purposes tonight, without getting too far into it, the church, and you're going to see that later, and went off to make war on the rest of her offspring, on those who keep the commandments of God and hold to the testimony of Jesus. We are the ones who hold to the testimony of Jesus. There's debate about that Israel church. Don't get into it. All you need to know is you hold to the testimony of Jesus if you're in Christ, and you have an enemy. You have an oppressor. You have someone who hates you. He wants you dead. He wants you taken out. He's going to whisper lies of suicide. He's going to come at you with temptation. He hates you. He has an oppressive mindset for you in every area of your life, and he's looking for those opportune times. That's why you need a revolution and not a resolution, because you have an oppressor. Secondly, we have freedom in Christ and must lay claim to it. Galatians 5.1, it says, For freedom Christ has set us free. Stand firm, therefore, and do not again submit to a yoke of slavery. Now, in context, the yoke of slavery there is the law. He's writing to the Galatians, these Jewish now believers who have trusted in Christ and still think they have to follow all 613 laws of the Old Testament. And he's like, no, 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 no. You've been set free in Christ. Don't, don't think you're gonna follow the law now. You're gonna, you're gonna follow all 600 resolutions? You're submitting to a yoke of slavery. Jesus set you free, he'll keep you free. Again, a relationship will change your reality, not rules or laws. So he says, don't submit yourself to a yoke of slavery again, meaning the law, which is a lot like making a resolution. It's a, it's a personal law you're gonna put on yourself. As Colossians 2 said, it has the appearance of wisdom, but it has no restraint against the indulgence of the flesh. So you have freedom in Christ, you must lay claim to it. And thirdly, for a revolution to succeed, someone has to die. Now, you might be thinking, oh, I get it. Yeah, this is where you drop the gospel. Jesus had to die, right? No, the person that has to die is you. You have to die. For a revolution to succeed, you have to die. Period. It was the case for the Haitians. One 
half of the people on the island of Hispaniola, now Haiti, died in the revolution. Their passage to freedom was through death, and so it is for us. It's the only way. Dietrich Bonhoeffer, who wrote great theology during World War II in Germany, occupied by the Nazis under Hitler, Dietrich Bonhoeffer said, when Christ calls a man, he bids him come and die. It's the only way. It's the only way to freedom, and it's the only way to have a revolution in your life is to die. And the reason why is because you were born a slave to sin. You were born by Adam and Eve who fell to sin and all of their children for every generation ever since for the last probably six millennium were natural born sinners and so are you. Your mother and daddy were sinners and you were born a sinner and nobody had to teach you how to lust or steal or cheat or be prideful or lie. It's just within you. And that person has to die. Not only that, in 2 Timothy 2, it says that unbelievers have been taken captive. This is one of the most terrifying verses in Scripture. Have been taken captive by Satan to do his will. When we're not in Christ, we've been taken captive, slaves to Satan, to do Satan's will. So we're slaves to sin, slaves to Satan, and that slave must die. The only way is to die. And beyond that, now here is the gospel, the good news. As Romans 6.23 says, the wages of sin is death. Somebody's got to die because of sin. I had a Muslim Uber driver over the break. And uh, he said, oh, no, you can't forgive. I said, well, well, then how are you right with God when you do anything wrong? And he says, oh, Allah kills an angel every time I do something wrong. Because he knows in his heart of hearts, I've sinned against God. Now, he's praying to a false God and a false religion, but his spirit, which God placed in him, the conviction of his soul, because God writes the law on the hearts of all mankind, whether they're in Christ or not. He knows, I have offended a holy God. There is one. He calls him Allah. It's not Allah. But he knows he has sinned against a holy God, and someone must die. Now, in his mind, he thinks it's an angel. God squishes out an angel to do that sin because he can't conceive of, there's got to be death. I sinned against a holy God. Somebody's got to die, and I haven't died. But the Bible says the wages of sin is death. Somebody's got to die. Now we know that this is why Jesus came. For the wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life. Where? In Christ Jesus our Lord. God sees us in our separation from him by our sin, sends Jesus, God in flesh, to live a sinless life. This is Christmas, the incarnation lives a sinless life. He becomes the sinless sacrifice, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world, nailed to the cross, says, forgive them, Father. They know not what they do. The thief to his right says, remember me when you come into your kingdom. He says, today you'll be with me in paradise. Is buried, raised again on the third day, ascends, spirit descends, and dwells believers that whoever believes Whoever confesses with their mouth Jesus is the Lord and believes in their heart that God raised him from the dead, meaning he was not just a prophet. Every other prophet of every other religion is still in their tomb and you can visit it to this day except Jesus who was raised from the dead. You believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. And so Christ had to be baptized into death for us. Romans says we also had to be baptized into death. Romans 6, 6, it says this, we know 
that our old self, the one that was a slave to sin and Satan, was crucified with him in order the body of sin might be done away with or brought to nothing so that, what was the reason for that? That we would no longer be enslaved to sin, a revolution, no longer enslaved through death. In my office, right above my desk, right over there, Every day I see it, there's a self-portrait of me hanging on a cross. I've got on my suit and tie from my business days because I thought I was so big time. In one hand, I've got a briefcase with money falling out of it because I thought I was rich, that was in debt and overextended in every area. And in this hand, a bottle of scotch and I've got a blindfold over my eyes that says lust of the eyes, lust of the flesh, and pride of life. And it's him, it's me, a self-portrait being crucified, which looks kind of blasphemous. Like, isn't that supposed to be Jesus? And on the backside, barely you can see a crown of thorns and another person's knees. Because it says in Romans 6, 6, we were crucified with him in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing, that we would no longer be enslaved to sin. Because I need that reminder daily. Because my oppressor, the one who has gone to make war against those who hold to the testimony of Christ, has not given up. He knows where I live and he plants thoughts in my mind and he's got those oppressions and I need to remember every single day. Though the struggle is real, I am free now and I'm no longer a slave. Jesus has set me free. I don't answer to you anymore. We're free in Christ and the free came through death, ours and Christ. First Christ, then ours. Now that you know that resolutions fail and how revolutions succeed, you need to know how to start a revolution. I want to show you the first flag of the United States Navy. This is what flew on the six cruiser wooden vessels under the command of the commander-in-chief, George Washington, who commissioned the first Navy of the United States of America. It was not blue, it didn't have anchors, it wasn't for the, any other military branch, it was this. It said, an appeal to heaven with an evergreen that looked as if it was pointing towards heaven because they knew as they went up against this insurmountable rival of Great Britain, the only way that their six naval cruisers were going to defeat the British army was only by an appeal to heaven. That was the only way that the American Revolution was going to happen was that they called upon the providence of God to supernaturally intervene that the colonies, are you kidding me, would defeat the global superpower. And that's what flew, an appeal to heaven. And that's what we need in our revolution. So the three essential ingredients for a revolution, what you need to do, and here's what you're gonna do, like now, if you want this change in 2021, not for a resolution, but for a revolution. First, declare war and kill. Go on the offensive. Declare war and kill. And some of that's like, oh man, that's like, kind of sounds harsh. Because we've got this neutered, euphemistic, emasculated, like day spring greeting cards of flowers and sunsets, Christianity. And it's not the Bible. The Bible 
is war. It states in Revelation 12, as I said, we're in a war and we have an enemy coming after us. And it says in Colossians also to execute. It says, put to death the deeds of the flesh. Don't contain them. Don't manage them. Don't make resolutions and rules around them. It says, kill them. John Owen, great theologian, said this. You, daily, make it your daily work. Be killing sin or it will be killing you. And so you declare war, make war, and kill. You kill sin. And so for some of you, what that looks like is deleting apps. Get rid of your smartphone. Dump your boyfriend who says he wants to honor you and treat you with purity and keeps sleeping with you and pressuring you and coming over late at night and has a key to your apartment. Dump him. Don't have a conversation. Break up. Some of you need to get rid of the hookup act. Some of you need to cut up your cards, your credit cards. Some of you need to text your dealer right now and say, if you care about me, I'm done. I'm an addict. I'm going to die. Please never contact me again. Some of you need to change your music. Some of you need to stop eating cereal because that's what's going to lead you into this. Some of you need to erase your hard drive. I don't know what it is. You do. And the Spirit's likely speaking to you right now like, Oh my goodness, this is what I need to do. And if you don't know already, ask him. He will be delighted. He will be pleased to help you. It's what he lives to do. He's the advocate. He's the counselor. And P.S., one of the Holy Spirit's main jobs is to kill sin. So often we talk about the fruit of the Spirit. This is the positive work of the Spirit. This is the good things that he brings about. And we focus on that, the love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, gentleness, self-control. And that's really good. You know what we neglect? is the negative work of the Holy Spirit. John Owen also in Mortification of the Flesh, he talks about the negative work of the Holy Spirit. And at first I'm like, I'm reading, I'm like, that's a misprint. You can't say that. What, what, what in the world could the Holy Spirit do that would be negative? The Holy Spirit is God in spirit. He's perfect. He does no wrong. How could it be negative? And, he, and, and Owen's saying this, hey, the positive is the good fruit that he bears in your life as you abide in him. The negative work of the Holy Spirit is the spirit is the sin killer. You have no ability to kill sin. None. Sin is a supernatural problem that demands a supernatural answer of which you don't have the ability, and that's really good news because a resolution will avail you nothing in your attempts to correct your bad habits or kill sin. You bring God into the fight, God the Spirit, and the Spirit kills sin every time. It's what he lives to do. It's the negative work of the Spirit, but you've got to bring him into the fight. You've got to tap him daily and be like, Spirit, I'm in a war. This is my war. This is my battle, my temptation, my thing. This is my ditch that I go to. And you've got to kill it. And he will because it is his will. It's his will for the bride of Christ to be presented spotless without wrinkle or blemish at Christ's coming. And he is coming again along with the wrath of God. And that we would be ready and waiting and washed and sanctified by the Spirit. You declare war and kill. You enlist the aid of others. Revolutions are never individual. No, no one has ever done this individually. The Americans had the French and the Native Americans. The church has brothers and sisters in Christ. It's Hebrews 3.13. Encourage one another daily. Why? 
So that, not because just like, hey, good feels and Instagram posts. Here's why. So you'll not be deceived by sin. Your heart will not be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin because every day sin is going to deceive your heart. That guy wasn't that bad for you. Hey, you were going through a hard time. Anybody would have drank like that. You can have one or two. Hey, you probably could introduce Netflix again. You've had some victory over porn. Whatever it may be. But the brothers and sisters in Christ, it says we need that encouragement daily, not just on Sunday, not just on Monday, but every single day so that you will not be hardened against the deceitfulness of sin. And the opposite is true. If you don't get that daily encouragement, God's forecasting, hey, your heart's gonna get hardened. Sin's gonna deceive you. Your heart is your spirit in the New Testament and it's going to get hard. You're not gonna hear the voice of God because of sin. And including in the listing the eight of others, not just your brothers and sisters in Christ, but as I said, bring God into the fight. The appeal to heaven, that phrase came from John Locke, who you've probably heard of. His second treatise on civil government, he says this. I mean, the application here, he's talking about, you know, civil government. We're talking about spiritual government. Like, now a good ruler, but with an oppressive ruler in the land, what do we do? Here's what John Locke says. And where the body of the people, think about the church, or any single man is deprived of their right, or you could say freedom, or is under the exercise of a power without right, meaning you shouldn't, this, this oppressive power shouldn't be there, but they are, they're oppressing you, and have no appeal on earth, meaning you have no means to get out from under this. Then they have a liberty to appeal to heaven. That's where that flag, an appeal to heaven, comes from. When you're out of options, when there's no earthly means that's gonna get you out of your thing, when resolutions have failed on January 20th, you have an appeal to heaven, and God lives to set his people free, and he'll do so through a revolution. And then thirdly and lastly, you stay behind your leader. In a revolution, there's always a leader. In the Haitian Revolution, there was Toussaint Overture. In the American Revolution, there was George Washington. You always stand behind the revolutionary leader. It is what is called an archagon. That's a Greek word, the archagon. You hear the word arch in there, arch. It's like archangel, which means the ruling angel. Your arch nemesis, which means your greatest nemesis. The archagon is the prince, the leader, the chief leader, the one who goes and forged the way through that others can follow and here is what scripture says, Hebrews 12. Let us also lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, looking to Jesus, the founder and archagon of our faith. He is the revolutionary leader who through death bought our freedom, and now we follow him, and we run. It doesn't say walk, and we cast off everything else by the Spirit with the encouragement of the brothers and sisters in Christ, and we follow our archagon as he runs with us, endurance, and sets us free, who is seated at the right hand of the Father of the throne of God, and so we abide daily. We go with him daily. Galatians 5.16, walk by the Spirit and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. 
You walk with your archagon, with your ruling leader. You follow that revolutionary leader and you won't do what you don't wanna do. You won't go off the path. You won't go rogue. You'll just be like eyes fixed. I'm in a land with an oppressor and I'm following my archagon, my Jesus, my leader, my prince. And he's gonna lead me safely home into this freedom. You remember that 92% of resolutions fail. And even the 8% that don't, maybe they ran a marathon, but they didn't overcome sin. They might have started a new habit and gone paleo, but it didn't subdue the flesh. They didn't come out from under sin, which is why we're in this room. And so we need that revolution. Resolutions fail. Jesus never fails never fails. It says that his promises are the same yesterday, today, and always. That for everyone, for all time, if you are in Christ, his promises stand. And to him we say, amen, let it be so. Let it be done unto me as you have said in your word, because I have trusted in Christ and I'm an adopted son and daughter and dwelt by the spirit. I am yours, you are mine, and you never fail. You are made promises and you are not a man that you would lie and he will come through. And when he delays, do not be swayed, but you wait on him, wait on him, because there is a revolution. He is not only by your side, he is on your side, and he is with you in the war, and the war is won. You follow him, and you follow him home on this revolution. And 2020 will be amazing as we walk in the freedom that Jesus bought for us. Let me pray. Father, thank you for our revolutionary leader. He didn't come to make us better. He came through death that the slave to sin and Satan could also die, must die, that we could be free from the oppressor Satan, from the oppressive sin, that we could walk in freedom. And so Lord, for all of my brothers and sisters, myself foremost included, let there be a revolution by the power of the Holy Spirit in our lives, not because of emotionalism, not because of excitement, not because it's a new year, but because it's what you live to do and you have promised it is your will to sanctify us by the Holy Spirit, by your word, by the encouragement of the saints. And so tonight, may we make war, may we declare war as we go off to these circles in state, confess, this is the war I'm in, this is where I'm getting laid waste and I'm tonight getting out of the bunker and going on the offensive by the power of God, with God, with my brothers and sisters in Christ for victory, for freedom you have set us free. Lord, let there be revolution in the mighty name of Jesus Christ, amen.